Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 32, we're reading verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's Word. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. When I rehearse the story of my life, I sometimes tell it in such a way or interpret it in such a way that it becomes a sad story. Sometimes I tell this version of my story to others, but most often I'm tempted to tell it to myself. I tell it to others so that perhaps they'll feel sorry for me. In fact, I've been known to wallow in it and to even throw the occasional pity party. As a result, I can be downcast and feel sorry for poor me. Can you relate? My sins make me feel bad. That is, they make me feel guilty. And your sins make me feel like a victim. And if I can shift the blame for my sins to you, then that's even better. You see, everyone has a sad story to tell. Really. As a boy, when I or one of my siblings would complain about some situation, I can remember my mother saying, Oh, poor pitiful Pearl. Um, Well, poor pitiful Pearl was a doll that was first marketed in 1958. You ought to look it up. Uh, She is pretty pitiful looking. Uh, And Marinelle said that when she was a little girl, she always wanted a poor pitiful Pearl doll. At my house, and I think at many others, poor pitiful Pearl became a metaphor for anyone who had a sad story that they were using as an excuse uh, for not doing whatever it was we were supposed to be doing. And while there are many genuine stories, uh, many genuine sad stories, the real issue in the end is about how we respond to those sad stories. A self-pity party is how many of us respond which, if nursed, becomes bitterness. Self-indulgence, that is sin, is then often justified by the victim of of such circumstances. Yet for every five poor pitiful pearls, there's someone with a similar, if not a worse, story who responds differently. My daughter, Kristen, had a doll she named Happy. And um, instead of becoming victims, those who see the bigger picture in Jesus Christ 
become, instead of victims, they become victors. They triumph over adversity, and rather than indulging themselves with sinful responses, they rise above the circumstances, they overcome. And so the question is, what do we do with our sins? I often forget that I have been given the absolute best and most valuable gift I could have ever been given. Whatever else is going on in the world, whatever kind of problem you have, physical, financial, whatever the problem is, you don't have any problems that are any bigger than your sins. I've been given, and so have you in Christ, a prescription, a remedy, not only for what ails me, but for the very thing that kills me. If my sins and other people's sins are the cause of all my problems, temporal and eternal, and those sins have been paid for, and I no longer have to pay for them because the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, then how, then how could I be anything but joyful over the news that my sins have been forgiven? I am no longer in debt over my head. I am, in fact, rich. If you've had a close friend or a spouse or other family, family member, member whose confidence perhaps you betrayed or whom you have spoken against so as to deeply hurt them, then you know what I'm speaking of because the pain of such a thing works both ways, right? Perhaps you tried to act as though it never happened, sweeping it under the carpet because your pride gets in the way. If you know you were wrong, you feel great pain, you feel guilt, you find yourself avoiding your friend or your family member, not really able to look them in the eye. There's a breach between you and that friend that just won't quite go away. And then there comes that moment. After you have suffered for a while, when you humbly and sincerely and sorrowfully go to that friend or family member, And you ask them for mercy. There in their presence you confess your sins. Your sins against them and you ask them for forgiveness. What a joy. What a relief when that person embraces you and affirms their love for you. What happens? Your relationship is restored. This thing that was between you has been removed. And the joy can be overwhelming. Psalm 32 is a song that was written for God's people to sing to help them remember the joy joy or the blessedness of forgiveness. There is a place, of course, for an academic dissection of this and every other text of Scripture. But I want to tell you the primary reason... This psalm was given to us was for our exhortation, for our encouragement, for our help. 
This is the joy that David instructs us about in Psalm 32. What a great psalm to consider as we approach Easter, as we approach Good Friday, the cross of Jesus, and consider what it was that led him to that cross and what it was that he accomplished there. So the context of Psalm 32 is that it's written after David's great sin with Bathsheba. God had described David prior to that as a man after his own heart. And yet he had fallen deeply into sin. He'd committed adultery, even murder, and a cover-up. Doesn't get much deeper than that. As Hebrews, the book of Hebrews instructs us, David had also fallen prey to the deceitfulness of his own sin. No doubt, like the rest of us, he could readily see the sins of others. You remember as as Samuel comes to him and he tells him the story about the man with the little ewe lamb that was stolen away? And what was David's response to that? He was outraged. But David was blind to his own sins, and he called for swift judgment on others while refusing to deal with his own sins. How about you? Can you find the sins of everybody else but have buried your own? So God sent Nathan the prophet, the pastor, to David to do what? To put his finger on David's sin. To confront him. And after he tells that parable, that story about the stolen little ewe lamb, and David's in his fit about this man's sin, one of the most poignant moments in all of Scripture, when Samuel looks at David and says, You are the man. That's you. If God does that for you, it's because he loves you. David felt shame. He felt humiliation. But what he did next was crucial. After Nathan elaborated on the details of exactly what it was David had done, David made no excuses, and he stopped blaming anyone else. He owned it all, and so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Very simple, direct, no ifs, ands, or buts. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sins. Wow. So David tells us in Psalm 32 of this amazing joy, this amazing blessedness of being forgiven. What a joy and relief came when God became his friend again. To feel and know the beauty of God's extensive grace against the backdrop, against the ugliness and the darkness of his own sins. David shares with us what he has found so that we too might taste 
the sweetness of God's mercy. Nothing can be more terrible than to have God as our enemy, but nothing can be better than to know his pardon and his mercy. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The sinner's hell is turned into heaven. These first two verses describe in a summary fashion the effects of forgiven sin on the sinner. He speaks primarily to believers who have fallen into sin. And though it may be applied, as David does later in this psalm, to the unbeliever, this description finds its crescendo in the word blessed or joyful. A term that's pregnant with meaning, a term like the one used in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the man, happy is the man. It's a word that the Holy Spirit gave to us in the plural. Double joys, bundles of happiness, mountains of delight. Knowledge of forgiveness is the ground of our comfort and the feeling of joy, the feeling of relief. Also note the pronoun he. How blessed is he. This is a blessedness not limited to David, but to anyone who has sinned and has found forgiveness. That means you and I may know this joy as well as David. The self-righteous have no part in this kind of happiness. This joy comes only from the free grace of God. So this blessing and this happiness is the result of forgiveness. Forgiveness means to take off, to take away, that the burden has been lifted. The barrier has been removed. John Bunyan's Christian in Pilgrim's Progress breaks into his own joyful song when his burden is released, when his sins are taken away. And he said, thus far did I come laden with my sin." Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame. There was put to shame for me. So I want us to notice three ways that David was blessed. There's at least three, but three are mentioned here. First, he is blessed because his sin is covered. If you've ever seen the ugliness of your sins, you'll appreciate not ever having to view them again. Imagine a cover that hides something from God's all-seeing eye. Only Christ could provide such a cover. As clothes, could, uh, as clothes cover the shame of our nakedness, so the blood of Christ covers our sins. We spend way, much, way too much time trying to excuse, to minimize, and cover our own sins, but that never works. 
Only God can cover your sins. And when your sins can no longer be seen, then true joy abounds. Liberty. This is true when God forgives us, and it's true when we forgive each other. Second, David is blessed or joyful because God no longer imputes sin to him. To impute means to credit to your account. As a result of God's gracious mercy and forgiveness, he wipes out your criminal record. It's off the books. Not guilty. Now, we all know how to hold on to other people's sins because we're fellow sinners. Can you imagine that a holy God could let go of the sins that we've committed against him? This is God's act. It is God who justifies the sinner. Now, we all know how, uh, excuse me, um, this this is an act of God. God no longer deals with us as we deserve. Anybody here want to pray that prayer? Lord, give me justice. Give me what I deserve. Our iniquities are imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. It's interesting that Paul quotes from Psalm 32 in Romans chapter 4. He says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as a debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You can't do this. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot get rid of the guilt. You can numb it. You can try to hide it. You can run, but you cannot hide. There is only one way to be set free. God has to do it through Jesus Christ. Do you grasp what this means? That a sinner like you and me can go before a holy God and rather than face his just wrath, We are embraced instead. Really? Can you imagine any other blessing, any other blessing that can come close, close to comparing to that? And finally, David third is blessed or or joyful because there is no longer any deceit in his spirit. The sinner who has received God's forgiveness has known heartfelt sorrow. And we go before God and we say, look at me. Let me ask you, would you declare all of your debts if someone told you that they would pay them and cancel them? But you gotta, you gotta write them down. If you don't write them down, they're not gonna be paid or canceled. Would you write them all down? Or would you hold some back? Wouldn't you openly admit to a sickness if you knew there was a cure? Well, those of us who know God, those of us who have true faith in Him, know two things that we often forget. First, that it is impossible to hide anything from God. And second, 
that it's no longer necessary to try and do so. Verses 3 and 4, but when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. So he's holding on to his sin. I kept quiet about this. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That's what unconfessed sin does. Keeping silent about our sin. We're naturally reluctant to admit our sins. Don't you think that's just a matter of pride and shame combined? Our tendency is to do what Adam did. Remember what Adam did when he sinned? He hid as though though Adam could hide from God. (laughs) But that's, we're like little kids, right? I cover my eyes, you can't see me. But while we're trying to smother it, it smolders within. Like acid, our unconfessed sin eats away and and we become ugly and bitter and become unpleasant people. As long as we hold on to sin, as long as we hold it, it does damage to us and to others. Perhaps you have some secret sin which you're silent about. Or perhaps what the Puritans called a darling sin. I like that phrase. One that you really don't want to let go of. Keep it near like a pet. You've tried your best to get comfortable with it. But it's like sand in your bed. Or a pebble in your shoe. It's always rubbing. It's always chafing. It always brings misery. Well, that secret or hidden sin produces two bodily effects. First bodily effect is internal suffering through my groaning, moaning and groaning all day long. You might be silent regarding your confession, but you're not silent concerning your suffering. As your conscience is rubbed raw, it brings about emotional misery. You become depressed. You become sour. Like Cain, you remember? So Cain became very angry. This is when he's thinking about killing his brother. He became very angry and his countenance fell. He got depressed. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? I know, the, I know how to fix your depression. Sin affects us emotionally. It shows, us, it shows up when you're grumpy and irritable, and it shows in your attitude and your defensiveness. And pretty soon it turns into bitterness, and it starts sloshing all other, over other people too. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, be careful, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, the favor of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. 
Pretty soon this turns to bitterness and starts sloshing all over others. The second bodily effect is external suffering. My bones grew old, David said. And when we're emotionally disturbed, it also affects our bodies. Anxiety and stress often lead to sleeplessness and physical ailments. Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Sin can literally make you old before your years. Have you ever seen someone and thought, boy, they must have had a hard life? Well, a person who lives with unconfessed sin has a hard taskmaster who will use him up. And if you don't feel these things from your unconfessed sin, then it's likely you have what Hebrews 3 describes as become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, calloused. Used to bother me, doesn't bother me so much anymore. I've gotten used to it. Verse 4 describes the sorrow of a convicted heart. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The person who is conscious of their sin is tormented by it both day and night. Sometimes it's just in the background. We can't escape either our sins or our God. Psalm 139, think about this. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I could just get away. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be as light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God's hand is heavy upon me. God's hand is gentle toward the repentant child. But it chastens hard when we rebel. And to remain in such a condition has a draining effect. The picture here is of a plant in the summertime without water and it soon begins to wilt. Unconfessed sin and its guilt brings about a spiritual drought that saps our strength before God. And then we'll conclude this morning by looking at the first part of verse 5, and then, Lord willing, next Lord's Day we'll look at the rest of this psalm. But 5a says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. No more cover-up. He who conceals his transgressions, Proverbs 28 says, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. We often try to cover our own sins when only Christ can do that job. We not only don't confess our sins, we try to deny them to ourselves, to others, even to God. 
And at other times, we simply conveniently try to forget about them. And most commonly, we try to justify them. Blame shifting. Or we think we had a good reason to sin. Or everyone else was doing it. Or perhaps it wasn't all that bad after all. Or other people are just trying to make me feel bad about it. But then it comes time to lance that festering boil. This is what we should have done in the first place. It would have been so much easier and so much less painful, yet we put it off until we can't stand the pain any longer. It's pain at first, but relief in the end. You know, I've thought about this so many times where I've dealt with so many situations, sometimes where conflict has gone on for years. One of the beauties of true repentance True confession and true forgiveness is that usually it's fast. It didn't take 30 minutes. It didn't take four days. It didn't take a year. It took two minutes. The specific, not just the wholesale pouring out of our sins before God, David cried in Psalm 51.4 against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. To confess is to just admit the truth. To agree with God concerning my sins. In reality, we're no more capable of hiding our sins from God again than Adam was from was in hiding from God in the garden. Nothing can be hid from him. Yet we must come out of hiding, just us and our sins, and say, Here I am, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 18, And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beating on his breath, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, lifted up. The very last little thing there uh, in verse 5, the result, resulting forgiveness of sin, and you forgave the iniquity or the guilt of my sin. God is more ready to pardon sin upon our repentance than we are to repent in order to obtain pardon. God is more ready to pardon our sin upon our repentance than we are to repent in order to obtain the pardon. 1 John 1, 9, we say every week, if we confess our sins, plural, particular sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins, those particular sins, and He says, I'll throw in a bonus, I'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. There's a bunch of sins you don't know about, you've forgotten about, you're not aware of because you're dull or not mature enough to notice or you're ignorant. And God says, I'll cover those too. But I want you to confess the ones you do know about. And that's usually a pretty good-sized list. Oh, what joy comes in the moment the burden is lifted and we feel His gracious embrace. 
we're friends again. When our sins are removed, we are immediately and fully reconciled and restored in our communion. Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you, but I'm still irritated at you, so let's not talk today. He says, come to the table, let's eat. We're in fellowship, we're in communion. We got rid of the problem. I took care of that. You know, when you ask someone to forgive you, you know what you're asking them to do? You tore up something that belonged to them, if you sinned against them, and then you went to them and you said, I did it, would you pay for it? That's, that's what God does. And he says, yeah, I'll pay for it. And we sit down and say, are, are you still mad at me? No, I paid for it. Now, don't question what I did. Don't, don't, don't now question the gift that I gave you. Be thankful. That's what I want you to do. I want you to be blessed and rejoice. We're reconciled. And I'll cl- I am closing here with these five characteristics of forgiveness. Number one, forgiveness is an act of God's free grace. It is not based on anything inherent in me. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to clean myself up first. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When a creditor forgives a debtor, he does it freely. Second, God in forgiving our sins remits the guilt and the penalty. Guilt cries for justice, but in remission God seems to be saying to the sinner, even though you have fallen into my hands of justice and you deserve to die, yet I will absolve you of the charges. Case dismissed. Third, forgiveness of sin is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Free grace is what motivates God to forgive us. The blood of Christ, though, is the meritorious cause of that forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He paid the price, and he paid it with his blood. Fourth, before sin is forgiven, it must be repented of. Repentance is a qualification of forgiveness, not a cause, like the blood of Christ is a cause of forgiveness, but it is a condition. According to Luke 24, 47, quote, repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Repentance and the remission of sin are linked together. God doesn't just look the other way. In fact, what's necessary is for him to look at me. And when he looks at me, because of the work of Christ and the, and the cleansing blood of Jesus, he sees me not guilty. White as snow. That's what he sees. Fifth, God having forgiven our sins will no longer remember them. I like when somebody says, can God do everything? Can he make a rock so big he can't pick it up? That's usually the question. 
I usually say, no, he can't make a rock so big he can't pick it up because then he would be contradicting himself. And, oh, by the way, he can't forget your sins unless Jesus takes them away and then he can't remember them. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now that's something to celebrate. Micah 7, 19, yes, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And our sin is not like a cork which springs back up to the surface again. We tend to do that. It is rather like lead. And once God is forgiven, the matter will not be brought up again. And by the way, that's the standard for how we're to forgive one another. I'll conclude with reading verse 1 and 2 again. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is he, joyful is he, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so I ask you, have you tasted the incredible happiness of full and free forgiveness of your sins? Water is never so refreshing as it is when you have been out in the hot sun And the smile of God is never more valuable than after you've been living under his frown. Jesus said, he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so what are you waiting for? You too may know the joy of the forgiveness of your sins. And Christians, I know you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So why are you currently hiding some secret sin? Do you think it's going to just go away on its own? Or do you think yourself to be the exception and that unconfessed sin won't bring you down? Don't delay another day. Come clean. No more secrets. Stop the cover-up. Know the joy. You can have a fresh start and a clean heart today. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, Through your mercies we are not consumed, because your compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. O Lord, we have suffered much due to our sins, and you have graciously provided a remedy for us in the gift of your Son and our Savior. And so today we pray these words from Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We can't avoid hard things in a fallen world. There is much injustice and abuse, and, as I said earlier, we have all been mistreated. It is natural for us to feel sorry for ourselves and to see ourselves as victims But the Bible calls us to a supernatural response to our sad stories. 
It instructs us to turn the other cheek, to bless those who persecute us, to bless and not curse, to not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, a blessing. The Word of God insists that we count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Moreover, the biblical response to our sad stories is to be one of trusting God. He says to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. Perspective changes how we respond. You, the scriptures say, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you for he trusts in you. And so as we come to the table of communion today, it is not only communion with God, it is communion with one another. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So our sins have to be gotten out of the way. Scripture tells us that God was in Christ reconciling uh, us to himself, not imputing our trespasses to us. For he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But there's one more thing needed before we can enter into the full joy of forgiveness, and that is our response to other people's sins. I've gone to God and confessed my sins, and he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. And he says, now I want you to bear fruit of that. I want you to demonstrate that in how you deal with other people's sins. Ephesians 4, 30-32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all, let all, every last bit, every speck, All's included in that, right? All bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, and all evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, ill intent. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God in Christ forgave you. And now, O Lord our God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now your manifold wisdom might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which you accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, we pledge ourselves to you, one people, one church forever and ever. Bless now our extended fellowship and communion around our tables and grant us rest and restoration today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. Amen.